Anna, what are you doing? Uh, I'm playing asteroids. A- asteroids? Asteroids. Come on. Had you never listened to asteroids? No, I didn't think asteroids made noises. It's because they're in space. But that is the game. The game Asteroids. It was very popular in my time, in 1979. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I was only three years old in that time. <laughs> it sounds like Space Invaders. Well, Space Invaders is based on asteroids. Oh. Okay, I'm going to kill this because that is a bit too much. Okay, stop. That was the first game of this kind. Oh, wow. For this kind of arcade machines, it was just wow. Everyone was crazy with that. Everyone was crazy for asteroids. Yeah, I never played, I have to confess, I never played to this game. I'm not that <laughs> old. But I played to Space Invaders later. I thought it was a good kind of music for starting this episode. It's definitely very spacey and it really links into our theme quite well. Yes, I think that it does. Well, let's get to it. I'm Kirsten Banks. And I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. And welcome to episode 15 of The Scientists. Welcome to everyone to this number 15 episode. I can't believe it. We are adding numbers and numbers and now one five. I know. Big 15. I don't know how we got here, really. We have something special for this episode, too. We do. Yes, we do. I'm so excited about this. But we are not going to say that yet. We're going to build suspense. Yes, I think. So you must wait. (laughs) Yes, you have to wait and listen to all the episodes of the majority of it. Mm. It will appear eventually. Indeed. Well, getting on to our first point of business, space news. Space news. Space news. So I can say a couple of things about a very interesting paper and research that have been conducted recently from here, from Australia, majoritarily. It was uh, published in uh, Nature Astronomy Letters just a couple of weeks ago. So in this paper, Sun astronomers are presenting the observations, the very first observations of the ASCAP, the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder. Well, not exactly one, the first, the first one, but one of the first. One of the first. Uh, one of the first yeah. that were conducted uh, in uh, November 2017 using only 16 of the 32 antennas that this interferometer has. So just very quickly summarizing, the ASCAP, it is installed in uh, Western Australia, in the desert, very, very far from any kind of... In a very radio quiet area. Exactly, no kind of contamination there. And it is a perfect place to uh, start to observe in the cosmos. And it has 32 antennas, each one of 12 meters. And each antenna has what they call a phased array field that is providing not only a direction in the sky, but a kind of a mosaic. Let's say it's like when we were moving from just getting the counts of a star, just um, the magnitude of the star, to have a field of view, a little field of view. Okay. So with that, uh, ASCAP, it is a survey machine. It has a large field of view of of 5.5 by 5.5 degrees in the skies. That is... That's pretty decent. Yeah, it is a lot because it is... Imagine the full moon, it is half a degree. I was about to say, that's that's about 11 full moons? Uh, 20. 
Well, I can't do maths. 20. <laughs> 20, 20 full moons. 20, 21 full moons. Oh, by wow. 21 full moons. And that is doing it at the moment, at the same moment. So all of that is observed at the same time. That is why it is a survey machine, because it is able to observe all the sky in a very good way in just one day. Mm. And it's going to provide excellent new science. So what new science has it provided with us today? For this, what they were doing, it is using the 16 antennas that they're working at the moment and pointing during three nights, 12 hours each, to the small Magadanic cloud. Oh. It was covering very nicely all the Magadanic cloud. And they were looking for the diffuse gas in the small Magadanic clouds and to try to trace where is this gas and how it is moving. And that is the main result of it. They were able to find very nicely the gas structure in the main body of the small Magadanic cloud with the two main regions, what they call the bar, that is the main part of a stellar part of the galaxy, and the wing, which is more or less in the direction of the large Magadanic cloud. And, and we know that it is also a bit of because of the interaction with the Milky Way. And the important results here, it is that thanks to the very deep analysis and very detailed data that they have obtained, they have been able to trace outflows of gas from a star-forming region, a star-forming part of the small magnetic cloud. The winds of the many massive stars and the supernova explosions are pushing that gas away from the galaxy, from the small magnetic clouds, and we are observing that in a very nearby dwarf galaxy. We've a lot of detail that we have never seen this kind of detail before. That's exciting. And it is very exciting. I don't want to forget that the first author of this very interesting study is Naomi McClure Griffiths from the Australian National University. She's a college of mine. We were working together in CSIRO some few years ago. Fantastic. Really, we have to continue paying attention to all these news that we are getting from the new facilities that we are getting here in Australia. So Indeed, see how our instruments are going. Yes, exactly. So that is from radio. We will say more about optical infrastructure very soon. Excellent, yes. Speaking of optical infrastructure, I unfortunately have some sad space news. If you were keeping an eye out on the news in the last week or so, you would have seen that Kepler is no more. Yes. <laughs> the NASA Space Telescope Kepler is no it's run out of fuel and I'm, I have to say when I first heard this story I was like well, can't we just refuel it and then I'm like yeah, that's very expensive it, no, uh, no, no, so don't do that <laughs> difficult to go where Kepler is yes and, and to be fair as well it did last as long as it was proposed to last so it's even a bit more, I would even say. a bit more, even a bit more. Exactly. And it's NASA does a very good job at making instruments like this, like take Opportunity, for example, the Opportunity Mars rover was commissioned for 90 days, a 90 day mission. And while well, I used to say it's still going, but unfortunately it's not. And they may also stop trying to make Oppie come back, which is also doubly sad. Yeah. We're losing all of our favorite instruments in space. Yeah, that is very sad. Very sad indeed. Also because there are not many replacements coming. No, there's but not, which is... Sometimes. Is well, we will have new probes and spacecraft to Mars in mm -hmm. 2020. Mm. But of course, Opportunity have provided wow, great views. And, and, and so many opportunities. Ha, ha, <laughs> ha, ha. About Mars. And that also reminds me that was one of the things that... We wanted to talk during August that we never did because mm. <clears throat> I was 
in a bed in a hospital. Anyway. Someone went and got sick. Okay, well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, eventually we will go to that special episode about Mars and observing Mars, what space exploration regarding Mars have yes. taken us. Exactly. And we can't be all sad about Kepler finishing its mission because it's discovered nearly t- over two and a half thousand exoplanets. It is just unbelievable. It's, how it's done so much for us and its time has come. Just have a look to the graph that is plotting the number of exoplanets that we have detected and confirmed during mm. the time. And you see at the beginning, 1995, the very first exoplanet using radial velocities and so on, and some few more of them coming in the few years, and mainly using the radial velocity method, meaning using a spectroscopy, not using photometry. Yes. And then in some moment in two- 2012, 2013, don't remember, sorry for the sad year, but it is when Kepler started and blah. Oh, yes, it completely changed our world, well, universe, universal view of the cosmos, because back then, before Kepler, we didn't, we thought we were special, thinking that we had eight planets, eight major planets around our star. But with Kepler, we see that almost for every single star in the universe, there is at least one planet. Perhaps even more than that. Perhaps Perhaps even even more. more. That is a more conservative number, but perhaps even more. Mm. The discovery that I like most made by Kepler was finding all those planets that we don't have in our solar system, that kind of planet that we don't have in the solar system. Mm, like hot Jupiters? Not hot Jupiters. Not hot Jupiters. Uh, hot Jupiters were known before. Oh, okay, I didn't they, know that. They were known before, actually. The very first extrasolar planet was a hot Jupiter. But I was talking about these planets that are a bit more massive than the Earth, mm-hmm. but smaller than Neptune, the super-Earth. Oh, right. And there are many of those out there, right. at least as seen by Kepler, but none of them, as we know now, in our solar system. And I, as I say, as I know now, because perhaps that famous planet 9 or planet X, mm. if it actually exists, it should be a super-Earth. Ooh. Now that's exciting. Yes. Now that's very exciting. And that not is. to mention as well, the moon-moon. The moon moons. The moon moon. That was also another very <laughs> oh, not moon moon, sorry. The exomoon. The exomoon. Exomoon. It's first seen by Kepler. Well, we, we call it here the moon moon. Moon moon. moon. Yeah. That is also a bit related to the kind of topic that we are going to have today. Yes. The topic for today is... We are going to be talking about our solar system, but not about the main planets. Because everyone knows about those. Not about the sun. Because the sun, it does its thing. We can see it all the time. It is there, it is a star. Without the sun, we will not be here, but who cares right now about the sun? Exactly. We're going to be talking about the things we can't see very well. And they are sometimes a bit scary, and we have to pay a bit of attention to them. Yes, because panic! It's coming for us. It killed the dinosaurs. It's going to kill us too. It's asteroids. Asteroids. And and minor objects in the solar system. Exactly. And the minor bodies of the solar system. Because sometimes when we are thinking about the solar system, we say, okay, it is the sun, the eight planets, and you are now the five dwarf planets. Okay, perhaps if you are in other parts of the world, you say the nine planets or whatever. Doesn't matter. I tried to do the job, but it didn't work, so I will delete this later. (laughs) Anyway, but there is much more besides the planets and the dwarf planets and the satellites. Mm. There are many objects that we call the asteroids. There are also comets and there are also meteoroids. Yes. In fact, I'm wearing a meteorite, technically, meteorite around my neck. 
Oh, yes. look at that. I have a little meteorite. It's a little uh, shiny. I'll take it off. Hold on. Okay. Meanwhile, I will say something very important because it is sometimes a bit confusing all, all of these names. When we are talking about meteorite, meteoroids, meteor, what are these? And that is usually something that I like to say in my public talks, but not only there, but also in my, my university lectures, just telling to the students what is the difference between one and the other. Yes, and when to use the right term. Exactly. Try to use the right term because sometimes it is confusing, particularly for the media. So when, yes. <laughs> when we have a small piece of rock orbiting around the sun, usually less than some few meters, yeah. it is a meteoroid. Mm-hmm. In space, meteoroid. In space, it is a meteoroid. When it is coming to us and it is entering into the atmosphere and then you see that bright thing in the sky that usually it is not that bright because it is just a little dust that is coming into our atmosphere, that is called a shooting star or a meteor. That's right. The beautiful, shiny things. Actually, speaking of meteors, one of the people on my tour at Sydney Observatory a few nights ago saw a meteor. Whoa, that, yes. that is good. Apparently they saw it, it was like pink in colour, it whooshed across the sky, Very and then nice. of course I was looking in the wrong direction so I didn't see it. But that always happens. Always happens. In this time of the year it is quite common to see meteors because there is a very famous meteor shower, which is the Leonids, peaking around the 17th of November, so starting in a couple of uh, 10 days or so. Mm. And not to mention also the Geminids meteor shower in December, which I'm excited for that one too. Ah, that one too. But again, as I said, that is mainly dust. Yes. Yeah, tiny particles that are entering our atmosphere and it is just the destruction, the path that is following and the destruction of that uh, little dust with the friction in the atmosphere. And what we see it is our atmosphere that is, comes incandescent because of the path of the meteor. That's right. Or shooting star. But if that little rock is big enough and it is hitting in the ground, then we have the meteorite. That's right, like I have in my hand here. So this little piece of metal uh, was a 21st birthday present. Very good birthday present, I must say, from my auntie. Um, it is a iron, graphite and germanium, I think, meteorite. It uh, fell in Sweden. And it's, me- it's a meteorite, not a meteor wrong, as I like to call earth rocks. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and it's very cool. It's good. Look at it. Have a look at it. It's kind of, it's nice and shiny. It's been shined down. Definitely. So, so you can have the actual uh, metal, metallicity showing. Mm. And it's got these really awesome crisscross shapes. Stripes. Yeah, it's got these stripes on it, which is, I did a little Google, and it's apparently from the structure of the atoms inside of it. Well, and that is another of the reasons why it is very important to study meteorites and asteroids at the end, because we can find all these kind of metals. Many of them are not that common to find them on Earth. And in some way, they are keeping these metals from the formation of the solar system, Mm. particularly comets and other rocks that are coming from the outer skirt of the solar system. That is uh, the importance of studying these kind of objects. So the meteorite that I've got, done a bit of a Google, it's called Muon Eon Alusta. And I'm pretty sure I'm saying that completely wrong, but I'm just sounding it out. Uh, is that German? Swedish. Ah, uh, Swe- oh, German. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Okay. Coming to asteroids, when we are thinking about asteroids, perhaps we have the idea of that very famous part in the Empire Strike Backs when Han Solo is trying to go away from... Oh, yes. From, from the bad guys. Heroically from the dodging asteroids left, right and center. That idea that we have about crossing as the asteroid belt is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. See, here in my lectures, I put it clearly. Fake. fake. It is a fake. 100% fake. That is not correct. It works very nicely in the movies, but it is not uh, the reality. Imagine all the spacecraft that uh, they have already gone to the outer parts of the solar system, to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, mm. and go on. And we have barely encountered an asteroid. Indeed, because there's, funny this, lots of space in space. Exactly. It was mainly the Galileo spacecraft in its ways to... Jupiter, that had the possibility of observing a couple of asteroids. Ooh. So in 1991, Galileo spacecraft visited Caspara and it showed us a very irregular shaped object, as asteroids usually are, because they are not rounded at all. Of course. And later in 1993, it also took some few images of Ida and it actually discovered that Ida has a moon. What? Dactyl. An asteroid has a moon? Yes. That's cool. Yes, that's cool. We mentioned briefly that also in our previous episode, but we didn't put that much into that when you were counting the yes. moons around objects right. in the solar system. Yes. Oh my goodness, add that one to the list, Justin. <laughs> yeah. These for many times, particularly for my old times, these <laughs> were the main images that we have got of asteroids. Mm. Now... Right now, we have at around 13 objects that have been observed by a spacecraft, including the very first asteroid to be discovered, Ceres. Yes. And Vesta, both of them by the Dawn mission by NASA. But there are also Lutetia that was observed by Rosetta mm -hmm. in its way to the comet uh, Churi. Eros, Mathilde, Toutatis. Anne Frank, Staines, Braille, Rigu, that we can mention a bit about that because it is right now a, a, a Japanese spacecraft getting data of this very interesting asteroid. And Itokawa, that was also by another Japanese spacecraft, the Hayabusa one. Now the Hayabusa 2 is in Rigu and it just have been there for the last few months and in the last uh, weeks or so it have been releasing some few kind of probes to be moving and jumping on the asteroid. <laughs> and the idea it is that this spacecraft will take some samples of the asteroids and will return them to Earth. Yes. Hopefully Ooh, by so we're actually going to have some asteroid material back here. Yeah. That hasn't burnt up as it comes through the atmosphere. Yeah. So That's it, awesome. It will be not only from Hayabusa 2, But also, right now, the uh, spacecraft Osiris-Rex from NASA, it is getting its approach to Bennu, not Venus, but Bennu. In Spanish, it sounds very similar. <laughs> and it is going to do something similar. So it's going to be there, and it's going to get a bit of a, some few pieces of the asteroids and return that material to Earth. That is awesome. Hey, but I have a question, Angel. Where are these asteroids located 
Because I'm sure we've all heard of the asteroid belt, but can they be outside of the asteroid belt? Especially if we're seeing them sometimes too. Are they outside of the asteroid belt? Of course. Oh. So the, the majority of the asteroids are indeed in the asteroid belt. And that is why. That would make sense. It is called the asteroid belt. Exactly. Although it has a very interesting internal structure with some positions where you can find some gaps. These gaps are called the Kirwood gaps. The, that the Kibbut? Kirwood. 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 That's by the astronomer who proposed that there should be this kind of structure within the asteroid belts. Oh, there you go. That these are region where you can find... You still can find asteroids, and not as many as in other positions in the asteroid belts, mm -hmm. but it is because there is a resonance with Jupiter. Oh, of course, because, you know, we have Mars and the asteroid belt, then Jupiter. And Jupiter, rumor has it, protects us from some asteroids sometimes? Sometimes, but sometimes it does the opposite way. Sometimes it launches comets and other asteroids into the inner solar system. Because Jupiter is just really temperamental, isn't it? He doesn't care. Doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't care about anything. He's just happy as it is. But yeah, the, the asteroid belt, it is where the majority of the asteroids are located, but there are still many, many, many other asteroids that are moving closer to the sun. Ooh. And many of these are also crossing the orbit of the Earth. And these are the near-Earth asteroids. And there are some few, a kind of classification of Apollo, Amor, and some few other asteroids, depending mm -hmm. the orbit of these objects. These are the very dangerous for us, mm -hmm. because they can actually collide with the Earth. But they're not going to anytime soon. Not as we know at the moment. At least for the next hundred or so years, um, I think. So far as we know, no. But yeah. eventually it will happen. That's ominous. Yeah, well, and there is another position in the space where you can find many asteroids. And where's that? These are the Lagrange points of Jupiter. Oh, the, the Trojan asteroids. Exactly. The, the, the ones in the front and the ones behind. Yeah, the Trojans are in front. Oh, that's right, yeah. And the Greeks are behind. <laughs> Interesting choice. The Lagrange points between two bodies, it is just the position where the gravitational field it is like a minimum, so it is yep. stable. It is more or less the same in one direction and into the other. Yep. There are five of them. One it is behind, the other it is in front between the two, and the mm -hmm. main two are with an angle of 60 degrees between the two objects. Okay. And these are where the asteroids that we call the Trojans or the Greeks <laughs> are located. So the 60 degrees before getting into Jupiter in its orbits, it is where we find the Trojans. Yep. And 60 degrees after finding Jupiter in its orbit is when we find the Greeks. There you go. That's so funny. I wonder if they were chosen that way for a reason. The Trojans in front and the Greeks in the rear. Well, the Greeks are chasing the Trojans. I there you know. go. I don't know. I don't know. I just made up. <laughs> made it up. I don't know. It and Jupiter is the mediator. <laughs> <laughs> Could they be further out? Sometimes we are starting to find asteroids that are also a bit farther away. Yes. But well, I mean, like we said last week or the week before with the goblin planet, you were a bit sceptical because it might be too small to be a minor planet. I really like that you're making this point because that is perfect to make clear that asteroids are one thing yes. and the objects that are in the outer scale of the solar system 
the transneptunian objects are a different kind of thing. Oh, okay. So they might be similar in the sense that they're just individual small objects. But based on location... But based on location... They're completely different. The composition seems to be very different. Well, so, that makes sense because you know, uh, it's colder out there. Exactly. Asteroids, they are mainly made of rocks or yep. metals. Mm-hmm. They don't have any kind of ice or gases. Of course, because otherwise it'd be there. melted or evaporated from the heat near the sun. Exactly. But objects that are far away, Neptune and, and more, mm. and what we call the transneptunian objects or the Kuiper Belt objects, they have plenty of water and other kind of gases that are frozen there. So the composition is not exactly the same. And also they usually have even much more elliptical, elongated orbits. Mm. There you so, go. So with that, we can start to classify a bit better things in our solar system. So we said that we have the asteroids mm-hmm. and we also have in the external parts of the solar system uh, objects from the Kuiper belt and the transneptunian objects. All objects in the Kuiper belt are transneptunian objects. But not all transneptunian objects are objects of the Kuiper belt. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> For example, the goblin. Yes. The goblin is a transneptunian object. Yes. It is there. It is in the outer in the outer part of the solar system, more away than the orbit of Neptune. Yes. But it doesn't belong to the Kuiper belt. Where does the Kuiper belt start? It's some way around there. Okay. So it, Pluto, it is within the Kuiper Belt. Wait, so Pluto is within the Kuiper Belt, but the Goblin The Goblin isn't. Is n- isn't. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, what? It is... It, but we'll have to say that still here we don't have a consensus. So yeah. we are just trying to okay, classify objects that they are coming and we are starting to find many of these objects in the outer scale of the solar system uh-huh. and try to see what are they made of, how are they moving, their orbits, of course. And that is a difficult part because first they're hard to find, mm. they're very faint, so we usually see just the little points. Sometimes we only can see them when they're very close to to the sun. Like the goblin right the now. Goblin. So that is the difficult part. If you have a look to the kind of classification that we are getting of the transneptunian objects, you can get, I'm counting 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 different of subcategories. Oh, at the moment. Just categories. Subcategories within transneptunian objects, including Kuiper Belt objects. Yes. Or cloud objects. Yes, I would assume one is Plutoids. And Plutinos. Plutinos, Plutinos oh, I love that. Which is that. a subcategory of the Kuiper Belt Stop objects. Stop it. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. So that that it is not that easy. And again, that is changing all the time. All the time. Yeah. The more data we get the more this is updating because we are knowing much better about the external part of the solar system and about our own position in the cosmos. It is just top research at the moment to mm. try to clarify all of this. I have always loved the little history involving discovering the first asteroid, which is... Ceres? Ceres. Yes, I remembered properly. Great. <laughs> and is it also a dwarf planet? Yes. So can we classify it as a dwarf planet and an asteroid at the same time? 
Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. It is at the same time the main body of the asteroid belt. Oh my goodness. An asteroid and a dwarf planet. I thought when I came into astronomy I could avoid quantum mechanics, but apparently not. <laughs> no, no. You can be or not be, or you were and now you aren't. But now we're both. They're both and now you're both. Anyway, uh, the history that I love it is that there are people that they enjoy that much and love so much astronomy or trying to understand the sky that they don't care about the date or what kind of festivity is mm. happening that day. Because Ceres was discovered by Giuseppe Piazzi, an Italian astronomer, the 1st of January of 1801. Wow. Imagine that you are in New Year's Eve and in a step of being partying, you are with your telescope <laughs> and you're discovering a new object. He was very excited because for that moment, in that moment, mm. he had discovered a planet because we thought of, when the, during half a century, we classified Ceres as a planet. Yes, well, of course, we didn't have the classification of dwarf planet and planet N by then. Not yet. We are talking about 19, the 19th century. Exactly. <laughs> and the other thing I like to tell in this history that was the very first scientific thing that happened in the 19th century, because that was the very first day of the 19th century. It was too. Yes. Oh, that's cool. How, to be fair though, how great would it be if his New Year's resolution was to discover a planet? That would be like the quickest turnover period ever for a <laughs> New Year's resolution. <laughs> and talking about that, the 1st of January 2019, we are going to visit one of these trans-Neptunian objects. Ooh. Which yeah. one? We are getting to 2014 MU69. That is the great name. Wonderful. Wonderful yes. name. I know it right away. Also called as Ultima Thule. Okay, that's a, that's a bit, and bit better. And it, it will be the New Horizons spacecraft. Oh. It's going to do a flyby of this trans-Neptunian object. I wonder if um, if that one will have a nice little love heart to show us too, like Pluto. Oh, that was so nice. It so, was so cute. Yeah, I, I loved about those images that they were not showing the heart, but it was actually the Walt Disney Pluto dog. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Because Pluto, the dog, Pluto is... was named after Pluto because that was the same year, the year after Clyde Tombaugh discovered mm. Pluto. In the 1930s. So we are going finally to get an image of one of these trans-Neptunian objects. Speaking of trans-Neptunian, but even further out, so we've got the inner planets, we've got the asteroid belt, we've got the gas giants, the ice giants, the trans-Neptunian objects, the Kuiper belt, and then the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud, we think we it think, is there. We think, yes. Which I never actually knew. I thought we like, it was a thing that's definitely there. It's definitely a thing. But only recently I was like, oh, wait, we don't know it's there? We don't know yet. We can't confirm it yet. Yes. But there are many evidences that are for supporting that it is there. Yes. The main thing, it is many of the long period comets. Well, mm -hmm. Not many. The long period comets, <laughs> we are assuming that they are coming from this reservoir of icy objects in the outer skirts, very outer skirts of the solar system. Mm. Actually, the outer cloud might be located at one light year. 
to like GR7, yes, the ten layers of that. Scales of that. And from that uh, reservoir of tiny little pieces of rocks and ice, which are the remnants of the formation of the solar system, it is where the long period comets yes. are coming. Speaking of comets, during our holidays, in mid-December, we might be seeing 46P Wirtanen, which is the name of a comet. It could be the brightest comet we'll see for quite some time. I'm not that optimistic about that. I'm feeling a little optimistic because I want to see a comet for I the know, first time. I know, but, but also I'm talking through the eyes of the experience. How many times we have been very disappointed about the prediction, perhaps someone because it is not only a group. There are different groups doing the prediction of how bright is going to be a comet. And there is one that says, perhaps it's going to be very bright. And then that is capturing the media and the news and so on. And everyone mm-hmm. is excited. Everyone and, gets excited and, and then later, suddenly... No. Aww. No. Because the official forecast for that, it is that it is going to be even hard to be seen with binoculars. But we can talk about that a bit more, perhaps in the next episode. Perhaps indeed. That... It would be a good idea to develop all what comets are in a much more extensive way. Indeed. The important point for this episode that we are doing today, it is just to be sure that we know that the comets are different from asteroids. Yes. The comets, the majority of them are coming all from the Oort cloud that we don't know that it is there, but it seems that it's there just because of the movement of comets that are coming randomly from different parts of the sky. These are the long period comets, but the short period comets are actually coming from the Kuiper belt. Oh. So there are objects that were in the Kuiper belt, and because any funny reason, usually uh, some gravitational encounter, yep. they are coming into the inner part of the solar system. And then usually it is because they have a closest con- encounter with Saturn or mainly Jupiter mm. that they modify again the orbit, they are going to be even closer to the sun. And it is when we are developing and getting these very nice tails and structure that we love about comets. Mm. But I think, Angel, we've uh, kept everyone on suspense for long enough. The thing we're very most excited about today is that we've gotten our very first audio question. That is amazing. We are so excited about that. And it is fitting perfectly well with the theme that we are talking today. Exactly. So we are going to just to listen to it and we will try to answer it. Hi, scientists. Ed Brown here from the Science on Top podcast. Just wanted to say I love the show and I thought I'd ask you a question as well, uh, particularly with the recent uh, discovery of the goblin uh, planet that you were talking about a few episodes ago. I was wondering where you guys think the solar system now ends. Is it at when you get to Neptune uh, or the Kuiper Belt? Is it the Oort cloud? Is it these dwarf planets like the Goblin planet? Where do you think the solar system necessarily finishes? Anyway, keep up the good work. I love the show. Cheers. Thank you, Ed, for bringing us that wonderful question. And, oh gosh, I have to say, it's a breath of fresh air to hear someone else's voices on this podcast instead for ours. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, it was very nicely recorded. Thank you very much also for, for that question. And as uh, Kristen said, that is a very interesting question that uh, I wish we were able to provide a clear answer about that. 
But there are so many ifs and buts and what ifs and what nots and all that sort of stuff. It's subtly, yeah. So I, I think if we look at this from a mathematical point of view, in a gravitational point of view, the edge of the solar system would be where the, the gravitational influence of the sun goes to zero, which for those who know a bit of physics would understand that that happens at infinity distance. So in that case, there's no edge of the solar system. Yuppie, the Virgo cluster of galaxies is part of the solar system. Everything's part of the solar system. The universe is a solar system. We are joking. We are joking. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Anha? What do you think is the edge of the solar system? Well, there are two main ideas, I will say, about that. One, that it is the end of the outer layers of the Oort cloud. That checks out. Yep, if it exists. So. If it exists, but mm -hmm. there are many other evidences pointing that. Mm -hmm. So that would be between well, more than 2,000 to perhaps 200,000 astronomical units. That is almost, as I said before, two and a half, three even light years away. There are ideas that perhaps the, the old clouds is getting in that position. Usually it is said more, it is around one, one and a bit light years. Mm. These objects are still very weakly ligated to the sun if they exist, as we right. said about the old cloud. That is where we can usually put the connection of where is the limit of the boundary of the solar system. But there is something else that sometimes we also can use for defining the border of the solar system, which is the heliopause. Oh yes, I've heard of that. The heliopause, the point at which the solar wind gets Stopped by the interstellar medium? Perfect. Ah, oh, yes. Exactly. My physics degree paid off. Yep, that is very nicely said. So it is the moment in which the solar wind is just stopping because the influence of the interstellar medium it is equal to the, the influence of the sun. Yeah. And that is not that far away. No, that's, it's not, that's not far past because Neptune, actually, isn't it? It's a bit more than Neptune, much, much more. Oh, okay. But <laughs> it is not so far away as the old cloud, because there is a spacecraft that has already crossed the heliopause. Voyager 1? Voyager 1. Ah. It did it on the 25th of August 2012. That was quite a while ago. So yeah. it's, it's well into the, uh, well, that point now. And at that moment, Voyager 1 was at around 121 astronomical units from the sun. That is 18 billion kilometers from the sun, more or less. That's really not far. I know it's a big number. It is a big number, but, but not that not, far. Not far. So you want to build an interstellar spacecraft and you want to go to another star mm -hmm. and you want to start considering when the solar wind from the sun, it is not that strong and you have to be careful about cosmic radiation coming from everywhere, but also the interstellar medium, then that will be that. It will be the moment you perhaps will say, I live in the solar system. Yes. Wow. But there are objects that we now know, for example, the goblin, mm -hmm. that are moving much farther away than this. Of course. That one's much further away than the heliopause. And that is why, at the end of the day, I will still say that the real limit of the solar system will be the outer layers of the Oort cloud. 
So we've given you three answers and you can pick the one that you like best. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ed, for sending in that question and we hope to hear more audio questions. Yes, please. Have your voice more. on the Scientists. So we are going to wrap up quickly. We still have not mentioned what's up. What's up? What's up? And what? in the theme of asteroids, a very nice asteroid that is visible. At the moment. At the moment. Yes. Yes. Vesta. Number four, Vesta. Vesta. Number four because it was the fourth asteroid to be oh, discovered. That, oh, okay. There you go. And also for some time was considered a planet. <laughs> Another one. <laughs> Vesta is right now located in the constellation of Sagittarius. Mm -hmm. It is relatively easy to see with a small telescope. Sometimes even with binoculars. At the moment, it has a magnitude of almost eight. 7.9, almost 8. It's decent enough. Strictly talking, you can also see this object with binoculars. Although, as it is in Sagittarius, which is in the Milky Way, mm. it is in a very crowded field. Yeah, so it'll be, uh, it'll be like finding where's Wally. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it will be very <laughs> difficult to actually notice that it is. Yeah. Because you will see only a point, because that is what you see, a point. Exactly. So you have to observe it during some few hours. To notice that that point has been moving with respect to the background stars. That's right. Easily, you can Google uh, Vesta Tracker, and that is a very nice web that is providing you the sat position right now of Vesta with the background stars. You can also use, as Christine did, it is the good way of doing it, <laughs> using any celestial software. Yes. You use a Stellarium, didn't Stellarium, you? Stellarium, yep. Stellarium. I love my Stellarium. It's and good. Usually this uh, software, they include all the main objects in the solar system, not only the planets, uh, but many asteroids and the most famous comets and so on. You can see them you can wh even where they are. You can even see what the sky looks like from Vesta in Stellarium. Like you can set your location to be on Vesta. Mm, you can change that, and I think you can also go to Proxima Centauri and see the sky from Proxima Centauri. I think so, or at least from a solar system observer you and, can. Yeah, but I'm sure that I have done it. And you can even, you know, let's go to walk around the universe and you go to visit different galaxies and then suddenly you are lost. Where is the Milky Way? <laughs> <laughs> Where have I gone? I've taken a wrong turn next to uh, Andromeda. Where did I go? <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about that in another episode. But yep. For now, I think we have more than enough for this episode about asteroids and a bit of explaining into a bit more detail what the solar system is and the different parts of other bodies that are not the sun, the planets, and the moons. That's right. And the dwarf planets. And the dwarf planets. And the dwarf planets. Well, there we go. Well, as always, you can send us your questions at the scientists on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us something at thescientists at gmail.com. Please, please, please send us some more audio questions because we love them. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.